Varmt välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägerstorg. Nu kära lyssnare ska ni få möta ingen mindre än Nobelpristagaren i litteratur år 2021, Abdul Razak Gurna. Och han samtalar med Hans Olav Bränner. Låt detta samtal ta sin början. Kära, kära, kära publik, det audience, det Minister for Culture, det Members of the Swedish Academy, in summary, det Devoted Readers. Welcome to this exquisite evening at International Writers' Stage. And my name is Ingemar Fast and I'm the head of, I'm the artistic director of literary events here at Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. And this, dear friends, is a true story. You're on a bus bringing you from one city to another. The world outside the window passes by without you noticing a single thing. Because you have crossed the threshold into another, different setting. An unfamiliar world is unfolding before your eyes. And exhilarated, you prefer to stay right there. And when the bus reaches its destination, you leave. But only to return a few hours later. And you reach for the book in the bag and it's... Nada. And you suddenly understand that it's gone, forgotten on your seat while you in haste left for your chores. Paradise lost. <laughs> and the immense and instantaneous feeling of abandonment astonishes you. And in a painful and very clear-sighted way, you are reminded of the true power of great storytelling. Lucky for us all, the author of Paradise and other masterpieces hasn't lost his way to this huge building so brimful of the arts. He's waiting in the wings, but before we warmly welcome him on stage, accompanied by this evening's speaking partner, Mr. Hans Ola Brenner, allow me to add this. What would life be without our translators? Well, we would then all move through a rather barren literary landscape with little knowledge of the richness of world literature. Therefore, I would like to propose an applause to the translator Helena Hansson in particular and also to all her skilled and indefatigable colleagues. That said, that said, please welcome and accompanied by Mr. Brenner, the Nobel Laureate in Literature 2021, Mr. Abdul Razak Gurna. Thank you. Good night, uh, everybody. Um, maybe we could start by tracing time back a little. In October last year, it was announced that you were the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Literature 
for 2021. We got to know a little then that uh, Mats Malm had reached you in the kitchen, actually. That was this <laughs> sparse little detail. Yes. <laughs> a little later, we got to know that you held the possibility open that it was actually a prank. Mm -hmm. that, that was a healthy skepticism. But in December, you received the medal in London and you, hold, uh, you held the Nobel Lecture. Uh, and now, finally, in April, you're in Stockholm. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. That means that you are one of very few people who have held the Nobel Lecture in your own home. What was that like? Uh, well, I, I didn't know any difference. <laughs> so, but it was unusual, I guess, to be giving a lecture sitting in, uh, in Denise's, my wife's study, uh, rather than in a lecture theatre and so on. Uh, <clears throat> but it was very important, I think, for the, um, for the Nobel Foundation that the lecture should be filmed uh, because it was to be shown on TV and it was to be kept and they wanted it to be good quality and so on. It was completely painless. I mean, in the, in the sense that, um, um, I mean, the delivery of the lecture was completely painless. Uh, the writing of the letters are different, the, the lectures are different matter. Because, in fact, uh, there was the camera in front of me with a, one of those teleprompt things, so all I had to do was to read what was there in front of me. Um, and, of course, as you would expect, then the, uh, the cameraman says, uh, can we do it again, please? Uh, so we did it again, and that was done. Mm. Uh, the Nobel Lecture starts off with a sentence that not all writers could uh, utter. It says, writing has always been a pleasure. Yes, could, sure. Could you expand a little on that? Well, as I, as I say in the lecture, I mean, it has always been a pleasure in the sense that even before it was writing in any kind of uh, directed sense, any writing in the sense of um, writing for any reason, it was always still a pleasure. And I refer there to the way that um, when I was a schoolboy, that uh, my favorite class would be when the teacher says, goes to the board and writes something I suppose banal down like uh, my favorite blah or something like that and says, okay, you've all got 40 minutes, write something. Um, and that was always the best class um, and, um, and just sitting down and writing. And I think in, in the lecture I also refer to um, the poem, the poem by D.H. Lawrence. Maybe you're going to bring that up but I'm there now, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> um, in which he describes, Lawrence um, taught for a while uh, in a s school in Croydon, and he hated it. Um, and, but in this poem, he talks about that moment when the class falls quiet and all the heads of the boys, it's a boys' school, the heads of the boys are all bent over their desks, and their writing and so on. And I know this feeling myself from from teaching, how um, when you put up the subject or tell the students, the pupils, what you want them to do, and somehow it's like, I don't know, 
even the bad kids as you were, even the naughty ones, everybody gets their head down and that's it. And you sit there in this silence, uh, which is normally so precious and uh, valuable and impossible to obtain, and everybody's quiet. And I think that's, this is the best moment about being a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, innocent writing. It wasn't a great topic, but did it give you the feeling of writing a story, though? Yeah, I mean, quite often uh, I found that this kind of writing, or rather whatever the teacher put up there, I think I somehow managed to make a story out of it. <laughs> um, you know, it might be that... Um, write about you. I mean, quite often it was made up. I mean, there weren't, there weren't sort of uh, true things. Um, uh, what did you do on your holidays? Then, you know, you write a story, just make it up, you know, invent things. And um, So it, it was always possible to make a story out of any, almost any topic the teacher put up there. Mm. How do you make a cup of tea? Well, why not? Let's make <laughs> a story out of that. That's a nice, uh, nice task. But is it possible to expand a little now on the on the childhood environment from which you you took the impressions that possibly went into into stories? Uh, your childhood environment in in Zanzibar. Um, is it fair to say that it was a rather uh, cosmopolitan feel to it? Yeah, it is very much so. It still is, really, to not as much as it was, because uh, one of the results of the uh, revolution in 1964 was the um, the expulsion of uh, many people, um, <clears throat> and if not direct expulsion, in the sense of people being um, herded onto boats and sent away to Oman, for example, then it was uh, expulsion by other means, by victimization, by um, people being, um, businesses being expropriated or jobs, people being uh, losing their jobs and so on. So people had to leave to go and find a living somewhere else. So this diminished the degree, I suppose, of, uh, of um, the varieties of people who, who lived there. I'm thinking, for example, a lot of people of Indian ancestry left um, because many of them were in uh, commerce and business and so on. And, and because that became difficult for them to do, many of them left to go to Dar es Salaam uh, across the way or to go to India or to go further afield to Canada, to wherever places that would accept them. Some of them end up running the British government right now, actually, or their children anyway. So it's perhaps less varied than it was, but certainly growing up, I would have said, you know, you, let me give examples. You, could, you heard different languages wherever you went. Yeah. You heard people speaking Hindi, Arabic, Swahili, um, Chinese even. Uh, not many, I must say, but there were Chinese families as well running their businesses. Um, you, you saw Hindu temples, uh, Ismaili mosques, uh, Ithnashiri mosques, Ibadi mosques. Or so places of worship also were mixed everywhere. Um, and people traveled as well, back and forth. You see, this is the thing, that, that, that sort of cosmopolitanism isn't simply a matter of people who accidentally found themselves there. But there's a long history of that uh, traveling across the Indian Ocean, 
back and forth, uh, which was made easier by the currents, made easier by the trade winds. It, was, it, 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 it would almost have been accidental if it hadn't been planned uh, that people would be moving back and forth because the season worked like that. So, you know, um, all, the, all along that eastern coast, South Arabia, Western India, you find people who have um, connections, family, religion, stories, cuisines, languages. So you didn't have to, uh, to read a book in order to get a sense of a, of a greater, a larger geography. It was all around. No, no, not really, not at all. In fact, not at all, because where I grew up, the part of the town that I grew up in was just by the port. Um, so, and from, from our house, you could look out there and you, were, you could see the harbor okay. and you could see the ships coming in um, and going out. Um, and not only that, but because my father's business was actually dealing with the products that these people were bringing um, to, to sell to us. Uh, and and what they often did, because these were the, many of the uh, people who came on the musim, as it was called, or monsoons, that's the word in English, but uh, many of the people who came were, you know, pretty rough sailors. And um, generally speaking, they didn't um, um, go and stay in a hotel or something like that when they arrived. <laughs> they arrived, they descended, any clear piece of ground, they'd camp. They just spread their bedding and that's it. And they weren't always sort of sleeping quietly either once they'd done that. <laughs> uh, there'd be fights and noise and whatever and so on. So their presence was, you know, <laughs> it was self-evident. <laughs> They're there um, in front of you. Um, so you knew the world was coming at you. As a child, you're surrounded by all this cacophony of of words, of things they brought, because they didn't just bring the obvious things to sell, like fish or like dates or like whatever. They also brought little trinkets, you know, bracelets, rings, blah, blah, you know, which they would try and sell. Uh, the, yeah, so they were always there. Mm. And we knew their habits. We knew which ones uh, liked which fruit, uh, which ones were troublesome, don't tease them, don't make jokes, and so So to what extent did the same people come back then? I, I, I didn't mean that you recognize the people, no. but you recognize a type, as it were. Mm. You know, uh, people from... I mean, I'm sure this was all kind of the usual stereotyping of strangers, you know. But um, don't joke with those guys, they get violent. Don't do this with these ones, this kind of thing. Uh, it would, I suppose some, it must have been that the same people would come back, but usually you, you would only know, or I would only have known, say, the captains, because they're the ones who were dealing with my father. Um, I wouldn't have known the individual sailors, as it were. And of course, not all of them went away. That's another thing, mm. that they didn't all kind of get back on their ship and go away. Some of them would stay on. Uh, and so you have both a continuous recharging, if you like, of, of this influence that was coming. But you also had people who, who decided to make their homes there, um, at least maybe for a few years, if not for all their lives. 
And your father was working with trade, but still I've heard you say earlier that you didn't have the feeling that someone was rich and someone was poor. It was more of all the children all together in the street playing with each other. Uh, no, I didn't have the sense, but of course that must have been so. But I didn't grow up with a sense that, um, um, yeah, that these were rich kids and those were poor kids in the area that I grew up in, which, as I said, was by the port. And most of the people living in that area was somehow or the other something to do with the sea, either because they were fishermen or because there were people who traded in the products of the sea or whatever, something to do with that anyway. Boat builders, etc. It just seemed like everybody was... We all went to the same schools and that kind of thing. So, But did you have an early thought um, in the direction of you traveling once in the future? Was that something you were thinking about as a, as a kid, that one day I'm going over whichever ocean? Uh, maybe, but it wouldn't have been surprising because uh, we knew a lot of people who went away but they came back. So the idea of going away was not a permanent going away. People went away and came back and went away again and came back. Um, I mean, even, even in my uh, growing up, as it were, um, my father would you know, go away and be absent for a while. In fact, he was absent when I was born, actually, as it happens. <laughs> and, and he came back to find that he was, in fact, the father of another son. Uh, And while he was away, my mother took the opportunity to give me the name that she gave me, which was not the, which was not the name that he wanted to give me. <laughs> okay. So, but anyway, as I said, people go away, come back, and so I, I, I don't know if I ever kind of uh, consciously thought one day I will be leaving, but if I had, it would have been most definitely with the uh, idea that I would go away to do whatever, study maybe, and then come back. And of course, the museum uh, comes up in your literature as well. In By the Sea, it plays uh, a very prominent role. Yes, it, yes, sure. Um, because that, that particular novel turns on the, uh, both the idea of the sea um, and this cosmopolitanism that I've been describing, but also the, the presence of the, the merchant Hussein who comes and does his mischief, uh, and so on. Um, but it's actually also more to say what informs this society. Um, that uh, it's a society informed by, by what I've been describing, really, uh, both in terms of um, uh, encounters with other people, but also in terms of... Uh, stories in terms of um, what they know about the world. So the, the world for people, uh, I think, in that part of the world, and of course things have changed in a variety of ways, but certainly for that period that I'm describing there, uh, places like uh, Bombay or even Kuala Lumpur were a great deal closer than there was a Cape Town or Lagos or certainly Paris or London. 
Um, even though in terms of distance, probably they were not, but in terms of what people knew about them and the familiarity with which they spoke about those places and perhaps even uh, as were eyewitness accounts of those places, they were close. They were close places. So the idea of travel wasn't, wasn't um, distant and the idea of knowing about uh, the habits and customs um, and like I said earlier, cuisines, stories of other places, that, that was something that was shared. And the continent, so by the sea, is really about that world. Um, and, and I guess the difference too, which is also one of the subjects I've written about and am interested in, the difference between that world and the other world, which I also know about, which is... Uh, living in England. So in By the Sea, you have as well, both that people travel and... Uh, but, but it's a different kind of travel now because the, the, the cultural distance, uh, linguistic, religious, etc., is so vast um, that, well, it creates its own tensions and problems. But your father, his friends, they would sit together and tell each other stories from distant places and you would listen. Yeah, and my mother and my aunt as well yeah. would also be uh, doing that. But yeah, people spoke, this is also the other side of it, that uh, under, understanding, um, I think stories are ways in which we understand the world. You know, particularly in, um, in uh, a culture which is... Uh, relatively more oral, say, than most Western cultures are now. Uh, uh, that is to say, I guess, you know, here the TV and um, nowadays, of course, the internet and computing and so on have replaced that sort of sitting around mm. telling each other stories or listening to each other's stories. But I think when, when I was uh, young anyway, and I think this is still true um, uh, to some extent, that's what people did in the evening, you know, when you've had your, your tea, snack, or whatever you might be calling it. People, particularly men, of course, would go out and sit together and talk. And women would visit each other and sit together and talk. Um, and some of the talk might seem to um, um, a demanding listener to be trivial talk, or even crazy talk sometimes, because you know this, this is this is how stories get told. Somebody says, "Do you know?" and launch off on something, and you think you're talking rubbish. <laughs> It's just not so. Um, particularly stories about conspiracies. Uh, do you know? I, I remember hearing these stories about, say, 9/11, for example, and the bombing of the World Trade Center. And people saying, no, 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 no. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, those, uh, those Arabs, whatever. It wasn't that at all. That was a plot organized by Kissinger uh, or something like this. And it would be an elaborate story that would be told and developed and with, I swear, it's true. So you could get that kind of craziness going on. But also at the same time, you heard people talking about their experiences of um, real life experiences or perhaps visiting a place, or talking about, um, you know, um, a family problem, a feud, or, you know, somebody cheating somebody else, or sometimes um, an accident, an airline accident. I remember being amazed sometimes 
where? How do you know? I remember saying uh, to my father something like, there were 150 people were killed in that uh, explosion. I don't know if you remember it. When I think it was a Korean Airlines, which was uh, accidentally um, um, shot down by the Russians uh, about, um, I suppose, 20 years ago. I don't know if anybody is old enough to remember that. <laughs> but in any case, I remember saying to him, sort of, I think 150 people were killed. He said, no, 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 no. 248, or, or something like that. So, you know, there's also an awareness about the world. Um, and he, he couldn't read, at least he could read a newspaper. This is listening to the radio, listening to other people, and so on. So it's a different way of knowing about the world, and, and that telling stories and exchanging stories, particularly of other places, was, I think, absolutely crucial as a way of telling each other about what, how the world worked. So stories are a good thing and potentially a dangerous thing. Then. Yeah, stories are a good thing because I think the dangerous ones um, <clears throat> sooner or later overreach themselves uh, and kind of collapse, you know, like a balloon. Okay. I think. Eventually. Yeah. Going back to the Nobel lecture, at some time in your life, of course, uh, writing became something serious, something different. When mm. did that happen? When? Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, no, I wasn't being funny. I just hadn't, <laughs> hadn't heard the question properly. Uh, <clears throat> I th well, I don't know. I think it was... It depends what, what, what you call writing, you see. I mean... Uh, <clears throat> There's writing which is for basically for for no real for no um, direct purpose, as it were, which is either for the example I mentioned earlier, because your teacher says, "Sit down, this is this class, write," and you write, um, and it doesn't matter whether anybody else except the teacher sees this. Um, there's another kind of writing which is a private thing, which is what I started to do when I first went to England, because. Writing sometimes is very useful as a way of um, uh, disentangling thing or understanding uh, what you're doing. And um, it can be also, uh, even if it's um, sad, it can also be quite pleasant to write sad things sometimes if you're feeling bad and that kind of thing. Um, but that's not intended for anybody else to see. Um, I suppose unless you're a narcissist or something. But that's usually something that you do privately as a way of understanding and coming to terms. But there is a certain point where you're writing and you know that this is writing that you want other people to see. Um, and therefore you're making it in a different way. Um, there's a difference though between wanting to do that or even starting to do that and believing that it's worthwhile doing that, um, let alone actually getting somebody else to think it's worthwhile to do that. Um, so it's a long process uh, from the moment of starting to do so and recognizing that you're doing something more than just sort of um, confiding to, to whatever it was, your journal or your computer or whatever it is, and actually believing that you're kind of capable of producing something that might interest uh, somebody else to the extent of actually 
publishing it or disseminating it or whatever. So I don't know when exactly that happened, but it happened slowly. Um, and I, I suppose it didn't, didn't seem particularly believable in until, until you are really hooked, until you find that you're doing it regardless of the fact that um, letter after letter comes back from um, publishers or agents or saying, very politely saying, sorry, but no. And then you think, well, okay, fine, that's fine. Okay, I'm going to try another one. And then you know you're in trouble. So you're trying really hard until your novel was accepted. But after having arrived, well, the first private uh, writing that you did in England had to do with coping with coming to the new country. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also coping with what you've left behind. Mm. Because little by little, you got to know more about what you've left behind, or you understood it in a deeper manner? Yeah, but actually I understood it at once. I think, one, I would say, the, one of the first... Um, the, to some extent, it seems almost like the, the, the first sane moment after arriving, oh, you know, after the usual business of doing this and that and that and that, and actually arriving, perhaps lying in bed the first... Uh, and you think, oh, what have I done? So I think I understood more or less immediately that um, something, something's been lost. I've lost something. But then, it, yeah, but then it, obviously reflection and working things out, you come to understand more and more fully um, what it is that, uh, that such a move results in. Um, and I think this, uh, when I see particularly younger people you know, taking these terrible risks with their lives, uh, leaving their homes. And, uh, yeah, then I, I think, do you, do you realize what you're leaving behind? Hmm. So it's not just about coping with where, where you are, uh, it's also understanding, uh, yeah, what has been lost. But you were back in Zanzibar in 1984. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the problem—the <clears throat> problem also with um, with making life decisions like that—for me, it was slightly different because perhaps it's not as different as it is for many other hundreds of thousands. But it was different in this respect: that I knew when I was leaving that I was doing something illegal according to the laws of the state. Which, mean, which meant, rather, that it would not be possible to return, as, as it seemed at the time, forever. When you're 18, forever doesn't seem impossible to imagine. It seems just like another 10 years or something like that. So, um, but it was that kind of decision, saying, right, I can't stand this anymore, I must get out of here. Um, must go find a life somewhere. This is what I mean by loss. So when you realize that, in fact, you've left it all behind, um, it, it's, a, it's a different thought from, um, I'm just going to get out of here. Because when you're 18, you think that's, that's brave in a way. I'm not standing this. I can't be bothered with this lot. 
for <clears throat> but there is a particular bind that people who who migrate find themselves in i think whether it's willing or unwilling which is it, it's a life decision you're leaving your home to go to another place um imagine it's very very difficult to return and say you know what i made a mistake you have to make it work um and quite often people who do that don't actually have the means to make it work immediately they are the young they're not skilled so they have to learn the skills or they're poor and they have to find ways etc etc it take it may take a while before you can make it work and by which time your life has changed and you can't just say right i'm now going home because things have changed life has changed So this is what I mean when I say it's a particular bind because you have to wait really for most people I think until you've made a success of this life decision before you can triumphantly return home. Mm. Um and as I say by the time that happens if it does you've probably got a couple of kids and <laughs> bought a house you have a mortgage you have this you have that it's too late you can't just uproot and go back and uh as it were rewind the clock and start again. Was it a triumphant return in your case? In 1984? Yeah. No, no, it was a very humble return, <laughs> actually. Uh, it was because uh, the government said there's an amnesty, people can return. Uh, so I did, and um, I was able to see my father before he died the following year. Um, and I wasn't then, actually, I didn't have a, I hadn't published a book although I've been writing for a while, but hadn't succeeded in publishing it. And um, I hadn't uh, yet got a job as an academic. Uh, in fact, the only reason I was able to return in 1984 was because um, the roof in uh, our apartment leaked. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, so we got the insurance people to come in and have a look. And they said, yeah, uh, well, I think maybe there was a problem there. But anyway, okay, okay, okay. And uh, they gave us whatever it was, I think about something like 400 pounds, 450 pounds, which at the time was the price of an air return air ticket by Egypt Air. <laughs> so I thought, right, this this will do. We'll just stuff some more newspapers into that hole there. Uh, and I'll use this money to buy a ticket and return. So a very humble return, I'm afraid. Mm. But what you saw then, uh, did it the society that you saw, the places you saw again, uh, did the sum of that give you any incentive when it comes to to writing? Yeah, it. It. I was already writing, as I said. I just hadn't published. But I was already. I'd already written uh, Memory Departure, which you've got in your hand there. Uh, but it wasn't yet published, and I think I was on my way through uh, Pilgrim's Way, quite a way in it. Um, but what it did, <clears throat> which was very important, it reassured me, uh, this was 17 years after I left, um, and I guess one of the other things about leaving, which I should have mentioned earlier, is the sense of guilt. Um, especially if you're leaving people in difficulties, After all, that's the reason why you want to get away yourself. So you get away, and then you know, you, there you are, but then you know that the reasons 
that made it so necessary for you to go away are still there. So there is, a, there is also and also guilt because your parents are getting old and they're having difficulties and so on. And as time passes, you become convinced that this is what they think about you. And I guess the other thing I think a lot of people experience, I don't think this is just me, is that they think, well, he, he doesn't care for us anymore. So going back in 1984 was very important because I actually found out that I was wrong about all of those things. Wow. That's a big thing. Hmm. And then after a while you returned to England and, and after a couple of years more you were able to publish your first novel. Um, and I wondered the, the, the kind of transition from those private writings to actually creating characters and story stories. How, how did that transition happen? When did, for example, Hassan Omar uh, come along? Oh, yeah, he's been around for a while, man. <laughs> um, when I was, I suppose, when I was, when I sort of... Um, I'd said, I'd said earlier, you, I was always able to make a story out of things, you know, even if... Uh, so I just found that as, as that process of writing that I described earlier, sort of kind of uh, reflecting on things and so on, that as it was developing, I found that I was giving names to other people as if I was having a conversation with other people. So in, I was indeed fictionalizing uh, what I was doing. Um, And I was also reading a great deal in England. I mean, I was reading before, but in England, one of the one of the great um, benefits, I guess, um, of be, being in England, going to England, was that there was you know, so many books available, one way or another, uh, either to buy or or to borrow, or occasionally to steal. Um, I know it sounds terrible, but occasionally in a bookshop, if nobody's around, you know, alhamdulillah, you go home and read the book. Um, not often, not often though, <laughs> just just now and then. Um, anyway, reading, I was reading a lot. And I was reading about things that, I was reading things that sometimes made me think, as reading does, I understand this, so this reminds me of something I have experienced. Um, <clears throat> so that begins to give you ideas or shapes as well of how you might uh, fictionalize, I suppose, the kind of concerns and so on. Um, but, but it all took, you know, various attempts and rewritings and going through. Um, so I, writing memory partial was learning how to write as well. That's why it took so long as well. Um, and I was also a student and, um, I don't know, living, I suppose, as well. So it took, it took a long time to actually make a shape uh, that then becomes a novel. Even believing that it is a novel took a while. Um, but I had a while. I didn't, you know, Nobody rushed up, and uh, somebody actually all, all did, and then they said, "No, no, no, change our minds." So, uh, 
But nobody rushed out and said, we want to publish this book. So I had plenty of time to, to shape it and develop it and so on. Mm. And also to learn how to, how to do that. Did you understand early that you would have to kind of treat this or these many topics, uh, but from very many different angles, and that you would have to portray different generations as well in order to, to give us the full picture, so to say? No, I didn't understand anything. It's just sort of, um, just sort of um, start off. I mean, it's the... It's just wonderful that things work out sometimes because it's not. This is not uh, this kind of writing, if I can just call it that, just because I don't have a name for what it might be called. Um, it does not work by plot. It doesn't work by a kind of um, um, a scheme, as it were, that you can a formula or an understanding like that. It's it works out of um, an idea which you then that that develops over a period of time as you think about it and write about it and and grows and so on. So certainly at first, and you can learn to do this, or at least I have learned to do this better as time has passed. But when I started, I really didn't know whether I could find another page. You know, so, and the next day, because you've had time to to reflect and think some more, Another page and a half appears. But then you think, that's it, I've finished that, now what? Um, so it's a slow process in this way because it's not really clear for a while what the direction is. It's almost, well, now this sounds, this sounds unbelievable or not true, but it's almost like you have to trust the writing, as it were, to suggest things um, until a certain moment. This is my experience. Until a certain moment, which might be 20, 30 pages in, um, then things begin to ease because you can see, you can see where this is heading. Um, I think in, in later years, what I, what I did do was to make a lot of notes. Um, and then at a certain point, you think, okay, do you think you're ready now? And then to begin to write. But that... Uh, that wasn't how I started. I started by really just hearing, listening to whatever it was that was going on and then writing it down um, and and kind of trusting that. Um, and at times trusting, trusting your own inner voice uh, while it sounds kind of, you know, mystic and romantic in some respects uh, has a problem because... Uh, not everybody can interpret your inner voice. <laughs> so, so it may not make sense, uh, even though it made sense to you as you're writing. So it's, that's, those are the kinds of things, I think, that, uh, that uh, I had to learn as, as the writing developed. And, but then, as, so in answer to your question about whether I had an idea of these various perspectives and so on, no, I think I had an idea of uh, a, kind, a certain purpose, which is what I do talk about in my lecture, uh, the Nobel lecture. One of which, say, was to understand better what, what I had left behind. So that's never a departure. To try and understand <coughs> the... Uh, 
the way certain things, certain cruelties seem to take place, the way um, sometimes parents seem to treat their children with such obnoxiousness, uh, <clears throat> to understand the, and to write about that, that feeling of oppression um, when um, surrounded by a kind of uh, authoritarian, you know, dictation, people wanting to, to prevent you from living your life quietly, nothing big. I went, so I wanted to write about that place, if you like, where I had come from. I knew that. And when I came to write Pilgrim's Way, uh, I also wanted to write about this other place where I now found myself. So in general, that, that would have been the kind of direction that I had in mind. But how to arrive there was something that had to be worked out as you went along. Mm. I was curious, actually, about how, you, how your plots unfold. Because you're, you're, I would say that you're good at plots, but now I know more about how they really unfold in a different way than I, and I thought. We're very, very close to talking about memory now, now of course. Um, the vivid memories, uh, the character Abbas in this book, the the last gift. He's had a collapse, and he's uh, he's been very much alone with his memories. Um, and he talks, his inner voice, I'd say, talks about. I don't know if it's the absurd clarity, but it, at, at least it's it's a clarity that he talks about, even 40 years after he he emigrated. Could you relate to? To, to seeing them as incredibly clear after all those years. <clears throat> yeah, because it's not, I would imagine that it's something that he would have been thinking about and turning over in his mind. Um, I don't think, there are certain things I don't think you ever forget. Um, sometimes it seems to me <clears throat> that there are certain things that as, as, as you grow older, you remember, and I've heard other people say this, you remember things when you, in your 20s much more clearly than things in your 40s and 50s. <clears throat> I guess because they, they, they are fresh at the moment of you encountering them, whereas as life goes on, you encounter more and more crap and bullshit in your life. Um, <laughs> um, and, and the impact maybe is not quite as powerful as, um, I don't know, your first love affair or something like that. Um, but in any case, particularly traumatic events, it seems to me, um, do not fade. Um, there's a phrase, or a sentence rather, which I, I really love by uh, Anita Desai, the Indian writer, in um, her book, Clear Light of Day, in which she has uh, somebody say, uh, nothing's over, ever. Mm. So in that respect, particularly if it's, if it's something traumatic, then I don't think it, I don't think it requires too much uh, effort to recall it, especially if you know you've been suppressing it and not telling people about this because, of, uh, because you're ashamed, as in this case. You're ashamed of what you've done or, or, or what has happened or you think it's a shameful thing to have done. Um, 
So no, I don't. I don't have a an issue with that. The clarity with which he is able, once it becomes possible for him to start speaking, to be able to speak with that uh, detail. And the topic of being silent, not telling the most obvious facts about oneself. That's a returning topic in several of your novels, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in silence. Yeah, uh, for for different reasons. I mean, the, the various kinds of silences. <clears throat> I mean, silence is in something like uh, admiring silence, for example. Um, s- silence is is another of those stories, which is. Um, in this case it's a um it's a false story that he's telling because there is a true story which he's not telling uh, the narrator that is um which we don't know about even because actually he doesn't fully know it either uh but what he knows about he alters the idea behind that was really to say that um when we have um inconvenient and unpleasant uh events in our past i'm thinking here of people who've um who've moved from one place to another who have become displaced the kind of people that i have been writing about but other people as well but people who've moved away from um from their homes when you move to another place where no nobody as well knows about your past it becomes possible to to manage your narrative in a way that if you wish you could leave out the inconvenient parts or the shameful parts or the um without necessarily lying but you could you could do that um you could in other words reinvent yourself a little bit so that you're a nicer person or a braver person or something like this mm. um especially if i mean i guess one of the reasons we do that is because we want whoever it is we're telling that to like us um um and perhaps to be pleased about us and not to think of us as you know pathetic and stupid um so in this case it begins like that it begins as a way of trying to please the woman that he's uh falling in love with um but then sometimes when you do that it becomes impossible to actually retrieve whatever it is that is being suppressed because you've already told this lie and it doesn't quite agree with that one and so you have to tell another lie to make it agree with that one um yeah and if the, if there really is something that you don't want to talk about then that complicates issues in this case also he does not tell uh his uh family back there in Zanzibar that he is in fact um he has a an english partner so now he's got another series of lies to tell um and so i think i was trying to write about the sadness of a situation like that where uh not necessarily out of malice but out of perhaps even a desire to please um that this this desire this desire to 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 be attractive to be liked uh then creates this complicated series of um lies which become a problem that he can't manage especially when he has to return um and for me the moment the interesting moment is that he actually does in the end attempt 
to tell the truth. Silence would have been better because that results in even more chaos uh, and difficulty because now, now he's wanting to come clean. There's that kind of silence. There is also the kind of silence which is the silence of by the sea where silence becomes a means of self-defense. Mm. Um, that is for people who have no other means, it seems to me, of protecting themselves then silence becomes one possible way of doing so because at the very least you keep your dignity. You're talking about the main character who arrives in England um, pretending he doesn't understand English because someone told him that he, it was a smart thing not to reveal that he, he spoke English. Yeah. But he doesn't, doesn't really know if it was a good uh, advice or not. No, uh, but, but, he, but he's, a, he's a, an intelligent man and a mischievous man as well. So probably the mischievous idea of pretending not to speak English when he can and he can understand what people are saying might also have attracted him. So he didn't know why he'd been advised to say he doesn't speak English, but he thought, okay, fine, sounds, sounds crafty, I'll have a go. That novel has a, a very intriguing plot. I don't know to what extent the plot was uh, planned from, from your side, but uh, two persons who indirectly at least had something to do with each other in the old country in a, uh, in a very uh, destined way meet again in, in the new country by chance or to some extent by, by chance. Um, Did you plan it to be that way? Yeah, yeah. Don't misunderstand me. I was saying that at the beginning, when I was starting to write, it was it was more of this kind of feeling my way in. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that every, that everything is sort of. I'm just sitting there thinking, okay, what am I writing <laughs> next, or something like that. No, of course, I, I had um, by the time I'm writing by the sea. Um, I think what was that my fifth book or something like that. I'd had some practice at doing it. Mm. Um, so yeah, by then I knew where I was going with this book, more or less from, you know, page 20 or so. So, um, I had, yeah, I had planned that there would be these two narratives. Mm. Did we land this, the, the silence topic? What is the admiring part of, of it, would you say? Admiring silence? Yeah. There's an epigraph. You see, it was also about what was going wrong with a place like Zanzibar where it was impossible to speak, to be critical of what was going on. Uh, and the epigraph of, of Admiring Silence is a quotation from R.L. Stevenson, um, who, who is, of course, famous for things like Treasure Island and uh, Kidnapped and so on. But he also wrote extensively about the South Pacific and, in fact, went to live there and died in Samoa. Um, But he describes in a book called The South Pacific uh, going to an island called Apemama. Um, and um, you don't have a copy there, do you? Uh, no, okay. not here. Um, and he describes there the, the king of, of Apemama, as he calls him, um, sitting uh, at his uh, house on the waterfront, a small island in the South Pacific, with a rifle on his lap <clears throat> and, and kind of keeping an eye on his subjects, I suppose. Um, and he says, Stevenson says, 
that he was, a, he was an admirer of silence, who preferred that his people danced and sang rather than talked. And this seemed to me to be a, a, a neatly ironic way of saying how authoritarian government, as it were, prefers that citizens don't talk, uh, but do other things. So that's where admiring silence came from. So, but because it's also a novel about not telling the truth or not speaking about things that needed to be spoken about, it seems that the two um, themes, if you like, were, were suggested, were both suggested by the title. Mm. You have, uh, well, most of the novels in some sense are a historical novel, of course, but uh, you, you've written a couple of explicitly historical novels, uh, Paradise and the recent one, Afterlives. Um, was there some specific, specific reason for you to, to return to, to a historical context uh, and the First World War in Afterlives? You mean with Afterlife? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, because it was, it was a story that had been nagging me a little bit, you know. Uh, Paradise ends with that recruiting drive. Mm. Um, but I did, even at the, when I was writing Paradise, I always really wanted to write about the war. Um, but um, at the time of writing Paradise, I, I didn't really know enough. I tried to find out, but I didn't really know enough about that period. Um, and I became interested in any case in how it was that somebody like Yusuf arrived at where he is at that, at that ending, that recruiting route. So what was the beginning actually became the end of that novel, which was fine because I really, um, you know, kind of was very um, engaged and involved in the writing of that. It wasn't a problem. But as time passed and, you know, other ideas come along and I'm writing other things and, but it had been nagging me a little bit. So, uh, like, what would have happened to somebody like him? And as time passed, I got to know a little bit more about that period, either through uh, my work, my teaching, because I teach, uh, what I used to rather, until I retired, teach post-colonial literatures, um, and also reading. Then I thought, now I'm ready to write about that. So I returned to that moment. Not to write about Yusuf, because my contention would be that Yusuf would not have been unique. There would have been other people who also were recruited into those colonial armies. So that's why I went back there, to just pick up something that had been in my mind for quite a while. Hmm. So this nagging part, something is nagging you because you haven't... Uh fulfilled it in some way, then that, that's often a reason for a new novel? Uh, yeah, I mean, very often, nagging, being nagged by an idea is a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because, it, 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 because you're kind of like in the background working at it um, and uh, answering or asking that question, um, which means that you're compiling the stuff that when you're ready to write, then comes out in a healthy way. And so there are other things that are nagging me right now, which I hope will be in a book soon. But so being nagged is, is the... Books are never finished, as I see it. When I finish a book, and it's going out there, and I think, 
Yeah, but what about something else is already starting. There's some aspect of that, what I was writing about there, uh, that, that I haven't, as well, covered or touched. And the nice thing about that is that, is that in the meantime, I've probably already started writing something else. So that means that's the next book after the next <laughs> one. So it's very nice. It's nice to be nagged uh, by ideas like this. I understood that uh, receiving the Nobel Prize in Literature has kind of made some problems when it comes to the possibility of, of writing. How are you doing in, in that aspect? I'm not writing anything at the moment, no. no. I'm talking to you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you, will no, return no. To the, you will return to the writing. I, I was very nervous, actually, because I, I've seen different interviews with you, and very early on you, you, you said that you detected that all journalists ask the same questions. <laughs> so uh, that's part of it. But well, you haven't, you haven't. Okay, good, good. You're in the clear. <laughs> but you'll return to the writing after some traveling then, Absolutely, absolutely. I'm pretty sure I will. I can't think that I won't. I was actually in the middle of writing something uh, before the Swedish Academy um, honored me in this way. And I see it, um, I don't feel troubled or oppressed or frustrated by this. I think it's, it's just, it's great that they've uh, chosen to honor me with this. And I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable that um, people should want to hear uh, a little more and sp listen. Thank you very much for being here. Um, I think this is perfectly reasonable and I don't, I don't see it as, uh, as an unreasonable demand on my time. This is part of the deal, as it were. Mm. The, the novel, The Last Gift, there's a character here called Jamal, and he's, uh, he's, he's, he's the son in the original family, and he has moved uh, to his own place, and he's uh, looking at the neighbor, um, speculating where, where he's from. And it says South Asian, he guessed, from that quick glimpse, or South Arabian, Yemeni maybe. There are millions of them like that, millions of us, who do not fully belong in the places in which they live, but who also do in many complicated ways. You could find happiness in that. Do you agree on Yamal's thinking? Yes, sure. Um So, uh, people who move to another place, um, he's speculating, is he South Asian, is he Yemeni, is he whatever? Um, does he feel at home? Uh, probably not. There are many of us who don't, but maybe we do. So, this, this sense of uh, a kind of an ambivalence about belonging um, is not just simply to do with... Um, Um, sort of alienation or something like that is to do with the, with it not being something that can be complete. I'm hearing an echo. Anyway, it's to do with something that is with with a sense that is not complete, and it doesn't have to be that you're South Asian or Yemeni in whatever it is town he's in, in England. It could be that somebody who comes from Scotland and is in London also feels that sense that uh, I'm here, I belong here, I work here, but I don't really at the same time. So I, I'm, I'm wanting to say, I suppose, that it isn't strange to be both um, attached and alienated at the same time. I don't know where this hour went, but it's 
over and thank you so much Abdul Razak Guruna thank you thank you